Okay, good evening. Um, you'll find it helpful to turn to John 11. Um, the page number's on the screen if you've got a church Bible, it's 1075. Um, as Andy said, we're finishing off looking at the seven signs in John's Gospel this evening. Um, thinking about these miracles that Jesus performed, which uh, John records for us, which point to who Jesus is um, and what he's come to do. Um, so let's read John 11 um, and the first 44 verses. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Um, This evening we're going to think about that passage under five points. Cue sharp intake of breath. (laughs) Don't worry, some of them aren't very long, I hope. Um, But really I, I want us just to focus on exactly what Jesus is doing, what he's thinking, what he says at certain points in the passage. Um, Because I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of the passage about raising of Lazarus isn't actually about the raising of Lazarus. It's only in a couple of verses at the end that that happens. Um, So just by way of introduction, I want us to think about the first 16 verses and the motivations of Jesus in this passage. Because I don't know about you, but as we started reading the first couple of verses, it seems a little bit jarring, a little bit odd. Jesus finds out his friend Lazarus is ill. We know that he's his friend. We know that he's friends with Mary and Martha as well. We know that from elsewhere in the Gospels too. And we see in verse 3 that Jesus loved Lazarus. Presumably the fact that Mary and Martha are turning to Jesus to heal Lazarus means that they think he's got the power to save him, that he's able to do it. So then in verse 6, why on earth does Jesus stay where he is for two more days? Why doesn't he rush to Lazarus' aid? If he really loved him, if he really loved Mary and Martha too, you'd think he'd drop everything um, and come and meet his friend Lazarus. What is his motivation for leaving it two days? Uh, Well, in verse 4 and 5 and 6, we see Jesus has got two reasons for doing this. In verse 4, we can see that Jesus is really confident in what is going to happen at the end of this um, passage. See, he says, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. His aim is always God's glory throughout everything. He wants people to see who God is um, and what he's like. But also, we can see in verse 5 and 6, it says, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So, when he um, heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. It's precisely because he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary, Mary, that he stays where he was. Seems a bit odd at first. Um, How can Jesus hanging back, not visiting Lazarus when he's ill, um, mean that he loves them? It kind of seems as if he doesn't care almost. But I think it's maybe more to do with the fact that he wants Lazarus and Mary and Martha and his disciples, we see later in the passage as well, to see God's glory. He wants them to see how good God is. Um, So just... By way of introduction, Jesus' motivations in this passage aren't to make them suffer, isn't to make them go through this unnecessarily. 
It's not some kind of ego trip. He's doing it out of love to show them how good he is, how good life in him is, how much better that is um, than anything else. And that's in line with John's purpose for the whole book as well. You can see in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's motivation for writing the book. That's Jesus' reason for doing all that he does as well. It's for God's glory and so that we might believe. There we go. That was the first point. Relatively quick, I hope. So then Jesus and his disciples um, eventually leave where they are. They go to Bethany, uh, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are. Um, And through Jesus' conversation with Martha, who comes out to meet him, we see um, a promise that he gives her, which is really um, incredible, which we'll come to in a second. But first, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. Like we said earlier, she definitely knows that Jesus has got the power to do that. She knows Jesus is able to heal him. But she doesn't begrudge Jesus arriving after Lazarus' death. She says in verse 22, I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's got amazing faith. She's mourning her brother, but she's hopeful that Jesus has the answer. Jesus says in verse 23, he's going to rise again. She says, well, yeah, I know. You'll you'll rise again at the last day when God judges the world. But Jesus turns the conversation on on its head um, by saying what he says in verses 25 and 26 when he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? We've seen before in John's Gospel that when Jesus says an I am statement, um, he's claiming to be divine, he's claiming to be God in the sense that um, the way God spoke to Moses in Exodus, where he says to him, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. But as well as saying that, he's also saying that he's the one who brings resurrection. He's the one who gives life. But he goes even further than that and says that resurrection and life are so bound up in who Jesus is, they can only really be found by believing in him. See, resurrection from death and eternal life, lived as it's meant to be, are so linked to Jesus, they can only be found um, through relationship with him. We can see that in the second half of his promise, where he says, the one who believes in me will live, even though... They die, and it's, quite, it's a little confusing at first, I think, because Jesus is uh, using life and death in two different kind of ways. When he says the one who believes in me will live, even though they die, the death he's referring to there is physical, I think. Um, but the life he's talking about is spiritual, is eternal. And when Jesus says whoever lives by believing in me will never die, he's saying the one who is living their life for me the one who's believing in Jesus will not experience um, eternal death, but will live eternally with him instead. So what's Jesus saying? Why is he saying this to Martha and to us? He's saying that the resurrection that comes at the last day and life as it's lived now, as it's meant to be lived, is not mostly about us. 
um, actually the entire concepts of resurrection of life are all bound up in Jesus. It's all about him. And it isn't just something that's going to happen eventually on the last day. But Jesus says, I, I am the resurrection, I am the life. It's something which is already happening in front of Martha. You see, if we're believing in Jesus, if we're trusting in him, then we've been raised from spiritual death to life in him forever. If we trust in Jesus, then we're no longer under the power of death, the power of sin, because by Jesus' resurrection power, through his life, we've been made alive to live for him. I think this is something that I can really easily forget. Um, and it kind of makes me perhaps a little uncomfortable when Jesus says, do you believe this? Um, I, f- I think I can forget that before knowing Jesus, the Bible describes us as being dead in our sins. It's perhaps convenient sometimes to think of the gospel, of the point of Jesus' mission as being turning bad people into good people, or kind of okay people into better people. Um, but it's not a sort of self-help book, the Gospel of John. Um, it's about dead people being made alive. Jesus has come to make dead people live for him. That's an amazing thing. That's what's been done for us in Jesus. We've not just been saved from hell, although we have that as well. We're not just being made more like Jesus, although he is doing that to us too by his spirit. We were once dead and now we're alive in him. And that's what he's done to us. Listen to these words from Ephesians 2, where Paul is speaking to Christians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This is who we are as Christians. We are people who were once dead, who are now alive. And that's not some kind of zombification process. We've not been sort of raised to some kind of half-life. That's not what it's supposed to be. In fact, it's life as it's meant to be lived. Uh, Sometimes maybe we can be a bit uncomfortable with being described as dead people or thinking about people who aren't Christians as being described as um, dead people. But as we learned um, recently from Numbers 19 that death and sin are so much not not meant to be part of our life on earth. It's as though we are spiritually dead because of our sin. They are so much not meant to be part of human life on earth. If we're living in sin, as it were, not for God, and it's as though we're not living a real life at all. See, God has made us for himself, to live with him, to enjoy him forever. That's what life's about. So if we're not living for him, then it's as though we're dead. Other things can be promising, they can offer a kind of life, things that are good even. But if they're coming first for us, then it's not life as it is meant to be lived. Jesus is the only one who can make us really alive. In the narrative, uh, Martha responds to Jesus' question over her belief with, Yes, Lord, 
I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Which is almost exactly what John wants us to say. You notice from the verse that we looked at earlier in chapter 20. Before she's even seen the sign, before she's even seen Lazarus raised, she believes that this is true. The question is, will we also respond like this? After this, in the passage then, Mary appears for the first time. She comes out to meet Jesus and some mourners follow her. Um, And the narrative sort of slows down for a second here. And initially, Mary says the same thing as Martha. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I don't think she has um, any less faith. I don't think it's fair to say that she's um, being disparaging of Jesus or anything like that. She falls at his feet. She still clearly believes he's powerful. She believes that he's able to do amazing things. And Jesus' response to her is just incredibly loving. Do you see what he he says? He saw her weeping, and the Jews also had come along with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit um, and troubled. There's a further application about Jesus' weeping, which we'll think about in a minute. But first, it's just important to note, he's weeping because his friend has died. Jesus was human. As he sees the tomb of Lazarus in verse 38, it happens again. He's deeply moved. At first, it can seem a bit contradictory, though, can't it? I mean, Jesus has just said he's the resurrection, he's the life. If that's true, why is he weeping um, at Lazarus's death? I mean, can't he just sort it out? I think we can see something from this, is that uh, Jesus mourns with us over death. He mourns with us over the effects of sin in this world. Because Jesus hasn't come to save us from imaginary pain or fictional grief. It's real. Because sin's effect in this world is awful. Like we saw in Numbers 19 last week, death is a consequence of sin and is unnatural. It's not meant to be here. Death doesn't belong in this world. That's another reason why Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Um, I'm told by people who actually know Greek, unlike me, um, that it can also be translated um, indignant or angry. So Jesus is, yes, he's emotional because his friend has died. But also he's profoundly angry at death itself. He's angry at the effect of sin in this world. John Calvin uh, has an amazing description of this in one of his commentaries. He says, Christ does not come to the grave of Lazarus as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler, preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death that he had to overcome stands before his eyes. You see, this isn't Jesus feeling helpless in the face of death. It isn't Jesus looking into Lazarus's tomb and just thinking, oh, if only I could have done something. No, it's Jesus rolling up his sleeves, as it were. Um, and he used a boxing metaphor this morning. It's like he's getting on his boxing gloves. He's ready to fight. You see, he's not just sort of weeping hopelessly. He's resolved to do something about it, something that only he, the resurrection and the life, um, can do, which we'll see as is Jesus' power. So after Jesus pauses to weep with Martha and Mary over Lazarus' death and death in general, 
he comes to his tomb and it says in verse 38 that deeply moved phrase again he's feeling indignant, angry, wrathful at death its effect in this world which leads him to saying in verse 39 take away the stone it's as if Jesus is saying at this point I've had enough of this no more weeping over death death isn't going to win today Death isn't going to ruin life as it's meant to be lived any longer. Now it's time for God's glory to be made clear to everyone. Um, but Martha's a bit confused at this point um, and alarmed, probably, you know, understandably. She raises the valid point that Lazarus's body is going to smell by now. It's probably not a good idea to open the tomb. I mean, he's going to expose himself to that. Isn't that going to make them unclean? Uh, it could be really easy for Jesus to respond harshly. Um, <coughs> to her but I don't think he does he says in verse 40 did I not tell you if you'd believe you will see the glory of God he reassures her um, calmly she's about to see the glory and the power of God displayed it's not of, con- of a concern to him um, interestingly Jesus doesn't get on with raising Lazarus straight away um, in verses 44, 41 and 42 Um, Jesus prays in front of everyone to his father saying father I thank you you've heard me I knew that you always hear me but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me Jesus is emphasizing here he's doing this sign this miracle together with his father who sent him into the world see Jesus doesn't want us to focus on the fact that Lazarus is dead and that he will be alive soon, although that's kind of what's happening in the passage. Or necessarily on the fact that he's the one doing it. He wants us to see that he's been sent from the Father to do his will and to accomplish his mission in the world. To beat sin and death forever, which ultimately, of course, we see at the cross and in his own resurrection, uh, which we'll think about in a minute. Finally, the sign actually comes, the miracle actually happens. Um, In verse 43, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus only has to speak and Lazarus' dead body obeys him. That's amazing, isn't it? That's ultimate power that Jesus can just speak to a dead man and he rises. See, Jesus' power is that he has power over death because he's the one who gives life. Lastly, and really quickly, Jesus' preeminence. Do you notice at the end of the narrative in verse 44, John doesn't even mention Lazarus' name. He just says, the dead man came out. The focus is entirely on what Jesus has done. You see, he gets all the glory at the end of the day. In verse 45, people believe the sign achieves its purpose. Um, But of course there are others who don't believe. Kind of after this is when we see people starting to plot against Jesus. Eventually at least to his death on a cross. As Jesus is dying, it looks for all the world as if he's beaten. The one who could say to Lazarus, come out. And he came out was now on a cross and dying, looking helpless and bleeding. But we see elsewhere uh, from scripture on the cross that Jesus was dying to save his people. He was not out of control. 
who's completely in control and confident of his mission still. And he goes through all of that so we can have life in his name. And three days later, he rose from the grave. We can see that Jesus claimed to have power over death and to be the resurrection, the life. We're not at all unfounded. No one else has been raised like Jesus has been raised. You can see that in um, John chapter 10. He's talking in verses 17 and 18 about him being the good shepherd. He says this, the reason, my, <coughs> the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. See, Jesus has raised himself. How does that happen? How can a dead person raise themselves? I think that's where we see proof of Jesus' ultimate power, that he is God in the flesh, that he has real power over sin and over death because he is preeminent. He's the only one who is king of all this world. You might be thinking, okay, that's fine, that's all well and good, but sin and death still exist, don't they? I mean, people still die. I think there's a, there's a now and there's a not yet dimension to the fact that Jesus is resurrection, he's the life. Now we're invited by Jesus to stop living in death and sin and live life as it is meant to be lived in him. <clears throat> Remember he won't turn us away either. If we come to him and ask him to make us new, to make us alive in him, he will do that. And the same is true for our friends as well. It's an amazing motivation for mission, isn't it? To think about the world as dead. It's a world that needs life. The not yet dimension then is that one day we will be made completely new. One day there will be no more sin. Death will be a thing of the past <coughs> for those of us who know Jesus. For those who don't, there's only more death. We need to keep reminding ourselves that that is the future, that is where we are heading. If we're in Jesus, we will be made new. We will be living life as it is meant to be lived forever. Let's ask God then as we go into the week to remind us day by day, we're called to live life for him in Jesus. In Philippians 1.21, where Paul talks about life being Christ, he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Life now is meant to be all about Jesus. Let's make sure we're living our lives for him and him alone this week. I'm going to pray in just a second. Uh, before I do, I just want to leave us with the words of Jesus and the challenge that he gives to us. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus' victory over sin and death and the devil that was won for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you that 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That in him we can know resurrection life now. Lord, thank you for the not yet dimension too that we have to look forward to. Thank you that one day we will be made new, we will be raised, and we will be like him. Lord, help us to see our sin this week. We ask you to take it from us. Lord, we pray you'd help us to live our lives for you and you alone, and to remember you are the only one worthy of praise. Lord, thank you for Jesus' death, which is our life, his resurrection, which is our peace, his ascension, which is our hope, his intercession for us, which is our comfort. Thank you for Jesus, for all he's done for us, for all that you are for us, Lord. In his name, amen.